We're glad you're here this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time or um, maybe you've been with us visiting for a little season here um, or whether you're regular, we're glad you're here. Uh, Visitors, we do want you to know that we do count it a privilege that you've uh, decided to spend your morning with us. I pray that you'll have kind of a sense that you're um, with a family. That's the way we view one another as family. And um, there's really a closeness that is not exclusive, though, where uh, we want to be welcoming and open to um, our visitors that have joined us this morning. So we hope that I hope that you feel that this morning. I hope you sense a, um, a community that is embracing you and welcoming you. I'm going to begin with prayer this morning. We're going to pray for another church. We're going to pray for Lone Oak Community Church um, and Eugene and Nancy Green. Uh, Eugene is the pastor there. And we have a few other odds and ends to pray for. Uh, if you would like to turn in your Bible, you can be doing that while we're praying to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Lord, this morning, I want to pray for uh, another church in our community. I want to pray for Lone Oak Community Church, and uh, we want to lift up Eugene and Nancy. Um, Considering that Eugene is um, aging and experiencing some of the health problems that go along with that, Lord, we just want to uh, ask that you would give him, um, I guess, endurance, that he would be able to continue doing the work of ministry and the, the ministry of the word uh, as, your, uh, as you have planned and as your will uh, is laid out. Lord, I, I pray that you would just give him many, uh, many Sundays left where he can do that and he can bring the word to the church there in Lone Oak. Lord, I pray for his marriage. I pray for um, that you would guard his marriage from some of the rigors um, um, that ministry brings to a marriage. Lord, I pray that uh, his marriage would actually be strengthened, that it would be the, the uh, proving ground for the messages that he's preparing and the, the worship that he's walking in and the gospel that he's proclaiming, that it would be the place where uh, his church in some ways can see that lived out uh, with a man and a woman treating one another as Christ uh, treats the church and as the church adores Christ. Uh, we pray that also for, um, for this church and every other church in our community, Lord, for just uh, healthy marriages, uh, healthy uh, worship that is is um, uh, illustrated in the way that we do life, and uh, we pray that for Eugene and for Nancy that uh, that would would bless Lone Oak as a result of that, and that that would bless our community as a result of Christians walking in in the gospel in our marriages. Um, Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for our Munich team, uh, our students that are abroad right now, as they are leading other students. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would sustain uh, sustain them with worship, that worship would would fuel that work, uh, that they would uh, be a wise and helpful uh, resource to the uh, younger students that are coming out there for the shorter term uh, mission trips, Lord, that you would um, give them a wisdom that's beyond their years, Lord. I pray that they would uh, be fueled by worship as they're going about that work there. And Lord, we do pray that they are connecting to folks that don't know you, uh, that you are, are guiding them into ordained uh, moments where they can tell their story and ultimately tell your story and how those two things have intersected uh, with the gospel. Lord, we also pray for our super summer leaders that are already in Brownwood this morning. Uh, Just pray that you are blessing them right now, that they are being equipped for the week, and um, that they are enjoying you as they're readying for students to arrive. Uh, And Lord, lastly, I want to pray for the base camp seeds that were sown this week uh, in Little Hearts. I'm just so thankful for the 
the chance to hear our kids lead worship this morning and just to see the faces and to imagine what's going what's gone on this week um, to imagine in some ways the spiritual eternal uh, effect there lord it's something to celebrate to think about a good and eternal word hitting little little hearts and little plots of soil lord we pray for purchase we pray for germination we pray for healthy roots that that grow deep and um, we pray that the uh, these little uh, seeds that were sown will bear fruit for your kingdom and your glory thankful for the opportunity to be stewards with these little lives and i pray that you would bless that work lord i turn this time over to you for um, uh, and how we spend these next few minutes talking about anger and um, just pray that you would guide us, that you would um, speak in spite of me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hopefully you're in Ephesians chapter 4 already. I don't have a page number for you. It seems like it's like 977 or something like that in, our, in the Bible that's in the seat in front of you. If you don't have one, you're welcome to that Bible. And uh, y'all, let's, let's go ahead and leave the lights up. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, let's do that. In ancient Israel, the day ended at sunset. It's kind of a weird thought. I mean, we don't operate that way. You know, for most of us, the day sort of begins when we get out of bed. You know, that's kind of the way I think we functionally operate. I think there's uh, maybe a mindset for some of the more technical among us that, uh, well, the day officially ends at midnight and then it begins at 12.01. That's sort of the Western mind. That's the way we think. But ancient Israel, the day ended at sunset. It's an interesting thought. It, it I didn't realize, or I didn't pay attention to the fact that it, that actually follows the creation week. Each day when something new was created in Genesis chapter 1, uh, there was a progression. And here's how that progression went. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. So the day sort of involved an evening period that began at sunset, and then it progressed through the rest of the day till the next sunset. You might think about how that could affect your view of life. Just the daily things that we experience, you might consider for a little bit how that might affect your view of life. For them, it, it, it sort of um, compartmentalized the workday. The workday ended at sunset because it had to, because the sun went down and they didn't have the sunlight to where they could continue working. And what's kind of cool about that thought is if the workday ended at sunset, then all the frustrations and all the difficulties and all the um, hard things that they experienced over the course of the day, they could park at sunset. Since the workday ended that day, the day ended that day, they could leave all those things behind them, the frustrations and the difficulties. I would imagine that would be sort of sweet to leave those things with the sun as it sets and to rest knowing that you can't do one more thing to affect what happened over the course of the day. It might make for a really relaxing evening if you viewed your workday that way, where you moved into the evening viewing it as a brand new day, a time of rest starting with sunset, and then a time of excitement as the sun rose the next morning, as the dawn came full of hope and fresh mercies. I want you to think about the beauty of this model in terms of the angst and frustration and even anger that you might feel toward one another over the course of the day. 
Okay, we're going to get real personal this morning. We're going to talk about anger and frustrations and irritations that we may experience within family and within church family this morning. And we're going to sort of connect it to how the ancient Israelite viewed the day. It began and ended at sunset. So let's climb into our passage and figure out how that might connect. I want to give you a little bird's eye view of this passage that we've been considering these last few weeks and that we'll be considering these next few. This passage here in Ephesians chapter 4 begins in verse 25 and goes through verse 32. And I'm going to read it here in a moment, but just give you sort of a, a bird's eye view of what's going on in this passage. This passage has to do with what life should look like this side of Christ for the people of God. It's, it's a passage that has to do with this is what life should look like in a church family. For Christian folk, in Christ, we've been redeemed vertically. The first three chapters of Ephesians, they uh, beautifully expose that we've been redeemed with our, or we've been restored to relationship with our Creator. It's a vertical restoration, but that's not all of the good news of the first three chapters of Ephesians. The rest of the good news is we've been uh, restored to fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And in fact, it's such a, a, a crazy restoration that he, he chose Jews and Gentiles to illustrate it. He couldn't have picked two people that were more different than a Jew and a Gentile. And those are the people that, that he, he has used to illustrate what has happened in the gospel where we've been restored to our creator and we've been restored into a beautiful fellowship with one another. And this passage in some ways exposes what that life should look like together how we should move together, what our lives should look like as we walk with one another as a new humanity. Now, this passage, it follows an interesting flow. If you've been here the last couple Sundays, you know that each of these things, there are five or six things that are, that are pointed out in this passage that we've broken out into five or six Sundays. And each of them follows sort of a, a common pattern of two exhortations and then a motivating clause. Okay, so just kind of pay attention to that as I read these, and I'll point a couple out to you that we've already considered, and then I'll point out to you where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You can see that pattern there. There's two exhortations there. The first one begins with a negative exhortation, put away falsehood, and then the positive exhortation, speak truth with your neighbor. And then here's the motivating clause, for we're members of one, of one another. Okay, so each of these follow a similar pattern. And here's where we're going to be this morning in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's the next one. That was the, if you're paying attention there, verse 28 was the third one. Here's a fourth one. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And this has sort of two motivating clauses. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then the next one, the last one, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We've already considered verse 25 in our first Sunday in this passage. And then last Sunday we considered verse um, 
29 and 30 together. And then this Sunday, we're considering verses 26 and 27. It's our third installment in this paragraph. And today we're going to consider the topic and issue of anger and what to do with it. This one is different from the others in that it begins with a positive exhortation and then the negative and then the motivating clause. So I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to sort of unpack it over these next few minutes. And I'll just give you a kind of a, a layout, a map for the morning. I'm going to spend most of our time considering the positive exhortation, the first phrase, and then less time on the second and third, and then I'm going to encourage you with a couple of application points. Okay? So if you need sort of a visual map to help you stay on track, that's, that's the plan. Okay? So I'm going to read it again, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. There's the positive exhortation. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's the negative exhortation. And give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, let's begin with this first positive exhortation. Be angry and do not sin. This is a strange little phrase in the original language in Greek. It's two infinitive phrases that are sort of stuck together. Okay, you don't usually see them stuck together, but, excuse me, I say it in infinitives, imperatives. Two imperatives that are emphasizing these things together. Be angry. It'd be like somebody telling you, be angry, but they're also telling you, but do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. It's interesting, the voice of these two imperatives. The first is a middle voice. We don't have a middle voice in the English language. The middle voice in the Greek language is sort of reflexive, which is interesting. You know, somebody says, man, you are making me so mad. Well, this tense or this voice tells us that that's not possible. That actually anger, being angry, is something you're doing to yourself. Because that would be a passive voice. If anger was something that someone else caused you to be, that would be a passive voice. But here it's middle voice, meaning it's something you've done to yourself. Be angry in the middle voice. And then the second one is an active voice, and do not sin. There's some folks that want to take this as a conditional sequence with this first imperative and then the second one. That they're sort of conditional, okay? And that would be in this sense. And I actually found some translations that handled this this way. If you're angry, do not sin. Okay, I like that, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Okay, it seems to give some room to maybe some righteous and holy anger. We like the thought of that, don't we? I mean, this is the conversation that I've heard and thought and considered over the years. If there's room to have righteous and holy anger, and that's probably, if I'm angry, that's probably what I am. <laughs> Making a beeline to that, of course, that must be what I am. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is an, a conditional, if you're angry, don't sin. I think a better handling of this passage is to see these two imperatives together in one thought. Be angry and do not sin. I think panning out to look at the context is going to help us make sense of this. Okay, so I told you this is where we're going to spend the majority of our morning. And it's not even a lot. This is a, uh, it's just, I want us to really explore what's being said here. So turn to uh, uh, Psalm, where did I get Philippians? Psalm four. Turn to Psalm four. <clears throat> this is context for this passage. You know, context is everything and context helps you make sense of things. Okay. So Psalm chapter four, Psalm, Psalm four, not chapter four, Psalm four gives us a clue as to what's being said here. I think 
with these two imperatives. And I'll begin in verse 1 of Psalm 4. This is a psalm of David. It says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Okay, David is, is, is writing this psalm, and so far it's Godward. He's directing this at God. Answer me when I call. Now he shifts his audience here in verse 2. O men. Okay. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long, will you have, uh, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Okay, he's speaking here. He's, at first he's speaking vertically to the Lord. And now he shifts gears and he's speaking to these men. O men. And he's speaking to men that are actually up to something. They're up to uh, conspiring against him to bring shame to his honor. And listen to how it continues in verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Let me sort of help you sort of connect what's going on here. Be angry, O men, of verse 2. Be angry, you godless men who are conspiring against me, but do not sin. You godless men who are using vain words and lying about me, who are conspiring to damage my honor, y'all go ahead and be angry and do not sin. Instead, ponder. Instead, be silent. Instead, don't act on your anger, thereby sinning. Okay, that's what's going on in this psalm. Instead, you godless fellows, trust in the Lord. Okay, so let's take that context there of Psalm 4 and bring it back to this passage. I think what it, what it helps us understand here is that it, it, it is a, a, a bad thing to act on anger. But he's also portraying the one who is angry who is likely going to act on it, the one who's bringing these words against David is the godless person. It brings some perspective here to this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that the one who's, who's dwelling in anger is actually moving in a way that's godless. Okay, we can make a beeline to righteous and holy anger and try and find some excuse for the reason that we're angry, but given what the context is of this passage, referring to Psalm 4, Man, it, this reference puts the angry and the agitated. That's also what that word means. It means literally trembling. It means it puts the angry and the agitated and the trembling person in the place of the godless. Let that hit you for a moment. So I don't think we should work too hard at trying to make the case from this passage in Ephesians 4 for some version of righteous anger. Okay, we pan out and grab Psalm number four. I'd like to pan out even a little bit further and do a little survey on anger. Okay, I want you to indulge me in this. I don't have a long sermon this morning, so indulging me I think would be especially appropriate uh, of doing a little survey on, on anger. Okay, we're going to pan out to look at the whole Bible. And when I say a survey, I only mean a handful of passages. Because the Bible has plenty to say about anger. It is far from exhaustive, what I'm about to share with you. But I want to introduce to you just a little survey 
on anger, starting with the wisdom literature. I'll share these passages, the references, but I have them at hand right here, so I don't expect you to turn to them. You're certainly welcome to, or you can jot them down. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 22, 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Okay, the little gist just there from a few snapshots in the wisdom literature is that angry, angry folks are fools. Let's just be really honest and let's see what's, staying, what's being said right there. Angry folks are fools and you shouldn't even be friends with one of them because chances are you're going to learn their ways. It appears that anger is contagious. Let's see what's said in the Gospels. Let's fast forward all the way over to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The Sermon on the Mount would have left some people aghast. Because listen to what he says next. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is shocking. The gist of this passage is shocking that Jesus places murder on par with anger. Man, if this sermon was about murder, I think mean, everybody in here would appreciate the weight of it and the gravity of it. You realize it might as well be. He places murder on par with anger. Man, and he does um, present sort of this progressive judgment of anger, even being beyond murder. He puts murder on par with anger and says you'll be liable to judgment, but then he moves beyond that in the area of anger to move to insults and calling someone a fool. Let's consider the vice lists. We've considered some wisdom literature, just a snapshot in the Gospels, a vice list in Galatians chapter 5. There are vice lists all over our New Testament uh, letters. Galatians chapter 5 has just one of them. You'll find anger in most of the vice lists. Listen to this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to just share with you all, confess, um, I think my weekly struggle in preaching is that I, uh, what Satan sort of confronts me with over the course of the week is, it's not really that important. You know, people have a lot of heavy stuff going on, and this is not really that important. I mean, it's important to me, but they're not really going to feel like it's important. And really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that important. That's what Satan whispers in my ears. But then I see a passage like this that says that we're talking about a matter that has to do with your eternal destiny. I think, yeah, we're not talking about a light issue when we're talking about anger. We're talking about some pretty heavy stuff. 
the gist of it being in this vice list is that this isn't just a list of no-nos. This actually is a list that, of things that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're talking about a seriously important matter. Let's consider some New Testament wisdom literature is what I would call the book of James. James chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 address anger. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man, I don't know about you, but if you ever get angry, the times that I've gotten angry, I'm really convinced in that moment that I'm going to accomplish what I aim to accomplish in my anger. But time and time again, I find that I don't accomplish what I had hoped to accomplish. And that's what this passage is saying right here. It does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Time and time again, bank on it. The lie that the fool believes is that my anger is going to get something done. And it gets something done all right, but not exactly what I had in mind. It accomplishes the opposite of what you think it will every single time. I thought I would end this little survey with a story, a Bible story. It might be one that you're familiar with. It might be one that you're not. It's one that you can follow along with me if you'd like. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And it says, a visual aid of the angry fool. I want you to be able to put a face and a name with what we've been talking about this morning and anger and the foolishness of anger. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, you're welcome to just listen and just kind of climb into the story or you're welcome to turn there and follow along. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. Okay, I'm going to introduce this man and his name here in a moment, but let's just point out the fact that this guy's got some money. Okay, He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. Okay, The name of his wife was Abigail. Nabal and Ab- Abigail. Nabal's rich, got a lot of sheep. Shearing his sheep in Carmel. The woman, Abigail, was discerning and beautiful. Okay, I love these little adjectives, little descriptors. They help you kind of climb into the story. Abigail's a cutie. Nabal's a rich fella with a bunch of sheep. Okay, the woman's discerning and beautiful, but Nabal, the man, was harsh and badly behaved. Okay, Let's continue to see what happens. He was a Calebite, after all. You know how the Calebites are. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. David hadn't met this fellow yet. He hadn't met Abigail. He just heard about Nabal, and he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So he's going to send some young men to protect Nabal. It's a time where you know, uh, thieves and stuff like that might want to take your sheep. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men that he's sending this word to to Nabal, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. He's sending a message to Nabal saying, hey, my guys have looked out for your shepherds and your shearers, and I'm asking you to hook them up with maybe some food, 
you know, some shelter, some clothing or whatever they might need to tend to their critters. So when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And let's see what rich Nabal says. Nabal answered David's servant, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to the men who come from where I do not know? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said, oh, no, he didn't. That's exactly what he said. No, it's not exactly what he said, but here's what he said. Every man strap on his sword. We're about to get something done. Every one of them strapped on his sword. And every one of them, uh, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail. Beautiful, discerning, wise Abigail, Nabal's wife. He told her, he said, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Man, the ball's a mess, isn't he? He's rich. He's got a lot of sheep. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got everything going for him, apparently. But his own um, employees there consider him a worthless man. Let's see what Abigail does. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. She like Martha Stewart before Martha went to jail. She's getting it done. I mean, she is really getting it done. And laid them on donkeys. She has got, I mean, like an assembly line going. And she said to her young men, I mean, just imagine her slapping the the backside of that mule. Get on. Uh, She says to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come to you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down to her and and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I've guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Abigail's going to intercede for old Nabal. Abigail saw David. She hurried and got down from the donkey and She fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. That's a quality gal right there, interceding for old knucklehead, bonehead Nabal. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord 
be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Then she just keeps pouring it on. I mean, I'm going to skip down to after she stopped pouring it on, just really talking great about David. And jump to verse 32, and David said to Abigail, all right, Enough, Abigail. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who've kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained, restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. So Abigail saved the day. Let's see what happens next. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he's holding a feast at his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, I just imagine he's got a pounding headache. You know, he's got, rubbing his eyes. His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. Poor old soul, he had high blood pressure from being angry so long. He's an angry, worthless man. His heart died within him, and he became as a stone, is the way it described, what it describes. And then 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Man. <laughs> When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David, on top of the whole thing, just to add insult to injury of the whole matter, David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his own wife. Wow, Nabal, that anger, that life, angry life that you lived for so long, how did that work out for you? <laughs> In the end, how did that work out for you? You lost everything, you died, and your wife ended up being someone else's wife. Man, what a sad story. You think about this guy was rich. He had a flourishing business. He had a beautiful and discerning wife. He had a lot of reasons to be a really happy guy. But anger killed him in the end. He's a visual aid of what this survey has shown us. That foolish folks are angry. And angry folks are fools. Man... The survey just so far, and that's all really a survey, I think. Actually, I have a couple of No, I shared all of them. That's the survey. It shows us so far that anger is not wise. Anger is not pretty. And those who make a practice of it will not go to heaven even. And it will never, ever yield what you want it to yield. You know what's interesting, though? We find ourselves irritated, though. Right? Let's be really honest. I hope you've heard these passages and said, Lord, you've got to intervene because I find myself getting angry at times. 
If we're going to be really honest with ourselves, we've got to look at this survey and go, man, anger is indeed not wise. It is indeed not pretty. It's never going to yield what I want it to yield. But yet I still find myself at times trembling. Remember what that word meant? Trembling. Irritated. And even angry. I love this Ephesians 4 passage because it seems to acknowledge that. It seems to at least address the reality that you will find yourselves squarely at times in a place that you don't even know how you got there. Maybe fight or flight kicks in or something like that, but you find yourself trembling with anger. This passage acknowledges that. It says, be angry, but then it says, and do not sin. Here's the point of this first um, exhortation. Do not sin by indulging in it. Do not sin by indulging in it. Yes, you're going to find yourself trembling at times, irritated at times, angry even, but do not sin by indulging in it. Then there's the next exhortation, the negative exhortation, back in Ephesians chapter 4. You can flip back over there if you've left it, or if you're already there, you can see it in front of you. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The first exhortation was to be angry, but do not sin. The second exhortation is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with that anger before the day ends. And following that pattern, that ancient Israelite pattern, before the sun sets even. I found an ancient writing about a group of folks called the Pythagoreans. There actually was a group of people that were called the Pythagoreans, like 6th century B.C., a group of thinkers. And as you would expect, they had a real focus on math, you know, kind of math geeks. They, Pythagoreans. Pythagoreans, listen to what was written about the Pythagoreans. This is just crazy. We should next pattern ourselves after the Pythagoreans, who, though related not at all by birth, yet sharing a common discipline, I guess math, if they ever were led by anger into recrimination, I don't know what they'd get mad about, like somebody's handling of an algebraic equation, I don't like how you did that. If they were ever led by anger into recrimination, never let the sun go down before they joined right hands, embraced each other, and were reconciled. This has just baffled me that Pythagoreans would, would do this. This is amazing. If a bunch of math geeks can move this way when all they have in common is A squared plus B squared equals C squared? Now, I know it's more than that. I'm reducing it to a theorem. But all they have in common is a discipline, a math discipline. I mean, I know some of y'all like math, but that's... When that's what they have in common and they can move this way before the sun goes down, they're going to join right hands, embrace one another, and be reconciled. Man, if math geeks can do this, who are united by nothing more than that, then can't we who are united by covenant and cross? Huh? It's a whole lot better than a theorem. Man, I just an encouragement from this exhortation here is put the fire out before you go to bed. Some of y'all are campers. You know what I'm talking about. In a campsite, you want to put the fire out before you go to bed. 
Because you never know what might go running through that fire. You never know what that ember might do while you're asleep at bed at night in that tent. It might catch on fire because you didn't put that fire out before you went to bed. The encouragement is to put the fire out before you go to bed because if it's left smoldering, it's going to do some damage. Keeping short accounts with one another is essential. It's part of life together. And remember, it's part of the workday. Do it during the workday, before the sun goes down. Anger, irritation, and trembling go down with the sun. Now why? There's the motivating clause. There's this last phrase here in Ephesians chapter 4. And give no opportunity to the devil. This word, this phrase, no opportunity, literally means no space. No geography, no place, no room. The beauty in not indulging in anger, but in dealing with anger expeditiously while it's still today, before the sun goes down, is the devil has no footing whatsoever. Familiar passage to many of you. I don't, it's funny how often we read this passage. It's just something that should almost be uh, memorized. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have three cats. I never thought those words would come out of my mouth. But we really do have three cats. One is an inside cat, Daisy. Daisy never goes outside because our last cat got eaten by something. I mean, our last cat named Smokey we had for years just up and disappeared. Now, somebody may have taken Smokey from us or something. She was a really pretty cat. Um, but she was an outside cat, and she disappeared. So now we have Daisy, and Daisy stays inside. Daisy does not step foot outside, even for a second. We gather up and scoop her back inside. And she can only hunt vicariously. The poor thing, she'll sit at the windows all day long and just sit at the windows and watch a lizard or watch a a bug or a bird, and, and then you'll watch her tail start to move erratically. Some of you have cats, you know what I'm talking about? Normally they're real sweeping, but she's watching some critter, and her tail starts to move erratically, and she starts moving her little paws like this, and then she'll run at a window and slam her face against the window trying to get to this thing. That's what she does all day long. She can only hunt vicariously, poor thing, but she does it all day long. And then we have a male cat, Cracker. Cracker does nothing but lay around. He is the sorriest thing I've ever seen. He's a handsome fella, but he is sorry. I mean, he does nothing but just rest and relax. I think a, a mouse might run in front of him, and he'd just look at it and say, Psh, I don't got time for you. But then we have Lily, the third cat. Lily is a huntress. Lily is hunting all the time. Lily might jump up in your lap if you're sitting outside and you might be petting Lily and you think she's just lost in that embrace and that petting and scratching, but she's actually hunting. She's listening for a bird. If she hears a bird in a tree near you, about the time you put her down and you stop paying attention, you, you look around and she's in the tree going after that bird. She's hunting all the time and she brings home the game half eaten and leaves it on our back porch nearly every single day. Lizards, rats, Mice, small dogs. <laughs> She's a huntress, man. I'm telling you, she can get it done. She is always hunting, always hunting. So too, Satan is an active agent waiting for folks to go to bed mad at one another. 
Unlike Lily, who's listening for a bird in a tree, Satan, I think, is listening for sharp words at bedtime. Satan is listening for voices that reflect irritation and trembling and agitation and anger. And man, he must smile when a man and woman go to bed at separate times and in separate beds without even a kiss goodnight. He must laugh because he knows he's won the morning. Before it even happens, he's won the morning. Man, when a man and woman ought to be getting up, gathering up fresh mercies like manna, instead, when Satan is given footing, they get up and pick up where they left off, right? Anybody else can identify with this? Anybody ever seen this? Anybody ever done this? I know we're not the only home that's ever experienced this. Man, when anger smolders all night, it makes a mess in the morning. Guaranteed. Because we gave Satan some footing. This happens in homes all the time. But it also happens in churches, people. This letter is written to a church, after all. It happens in churches. If you stick around church long enough... You're going to find it's going to be an occasion where somebody makes you tremble. Somebody irritates you. Somebody aggravates you. Somebody even could potentially make you angry. You could find yourself in a place where I'm full-on, full-fledged angry. And the encouragement is before bedtime, before that sun goes down, and, and if we want to be real literal to the passage, deal with it. Deal with it. I found an interesting story of something called the fifth column. In the Spanish Civil War, this story came out of this guy, this, this uh, rebel general that said that he was going to come into this city and he was going to march in there with four columns and he was going to take the city. And the way he was going to take the city is because he had a fifth hidden column in the city that were sympathizers to his cause. So the term came about of the fifth column, the hidden group of sympathizers within the city. Realize when you're an angry person in the church and you entertain trembling, agitation, anger, frustration with one another and don't reckon with it and don't deal with it, you become a fifth column in the church and you're in cahoots with Satan. You're giving footing to Satan so that he can devour the church. So he can leave a half-eaten cross point sitting on the back porch. Think about that for a minute. That's what's being said here. It's frightening when you consider what could happen when we go to bed angry with one another. Man, Satan loves it because it means a dismantled church, a little piece at a time, and he laughs while he does it. Man, here's my encouragement for you. Here are the helps for God's people. Here's the first one, and this might catch you off guard. In light of what's been said in this passage, here's the first one. Be thankful for conflict. Be thankful for conflict. My whole life growing up, conflict was failure. Conflict, conflict meant we'd done something wrong. And we just needed to act like it didn't happen. That's the way we dealt with conflict. But man, I want to invite you into a new way to look at conflict and realize that it's not if it's going to happen when it's going to happen, whatever causes the trembling and the irritation and the anger, that actually we can be thankful for it because it's going to be an opportunity to need grace. Somebody in that equation is going to need grace, and somebody in that equation is going to have to give some grace. I want you to be 
thankful for that conflict because it's going to be an opportunity for you to revisit what God has done for us in Christ by forgiving the relentlessly disappointing. (laughs) Right? Man, it's a great opportunity for you to be refreshed with that great tutor. It becomes a tutor reminding you of what God has done for us in Christ, forgiving us over and over and over again, oftentimes for the same thing. I want you to be thankful for conflict, seeing that it is an opportunity to show our children what great and powerful goods we Christian folk have to wield in dealing with conflict. What a great tutor for our children to see what the gospel looks like. Not for if they encounter conflict in the future, but for when they encounter conflict in the future. Man, be thankful for conflict. Thank God for it. It is a gospel opportunity. I don't know that you can even understand how to forgive someone or how to ask for forgiveness unless you go through some conflict from time to time. And the encouragement based on this passage is deal with it expeditiously. But deal with it. Be thankful for it. And deal with it. And here's the second one. The first one was thank God for the conflict. Make a good use of it. He doesn't waste stuff. And the second one is make Satan an inside cat. I'll explain that. Make Satan an inside cat. Confession and forgiveness rob him of the opportunity of getting some footing. Confession and forgiveness, working through these things that we all carry around from time to time, before sundown, and in our case, maybe before bedtime, robs him of his opportunity. It makes him like Daisy, where he can only hunt vicariously. He can't get to you because he has no footing. And he can't get to that, that relationship, and he can't get to that family, and he can't get to that marriage, and he can't get to that church because we've shut him down by confessing and forgiving. Man, I want to encourage you to do it because it's work. But it's, it's, it's work that we've been called to do. It's daytime work. It's part of the work day. It's work to be slow to speak and quick to listen and hearing how you've hurt somebody. Right? But it's a good work. It's work to be slow to speak and quick to listen in hearing how you've hurt someone. It's work to button it long enough to understand how your spouse or your family member member, or your hard-won church family brother or sister is feeling. It's work. But man, it's good work and it's part of the work day. And it's work to share. This may be the most difficult work for some of us. It's work to share how you're feeling in a way that's redemptive and hopeful all the while poised to forgive. Man, it's work to share when you've been hurt. But it's a good work. When you shared in a way that's redemptive and hopeful and you're poised to forgive, something awesome is going to happen. Two people are going to sleep better that night. And Satan can only hunt behind glass at that point. Man, it's work worth doing. I want to point out that a lot of the offenses that we have between one another are truly overlookable. They need to be. 
truly overlookable offenses that just happen doing life together. But there are some offenses that aren't. Some offenses that are truly not overlookable that we have to be able to address with one another. And guess what? We have the goods to do that like no one else in the world. We have the gospel. We have the model of grace and forgiveness. Man, I want to encourage you. Redeem those conflicts. Redeem them while it's still called today. It is a good work. It's what the hard-won citizens of God's kingdom do. No one else in the world has the goods that we do to do it, not even the Pythagoreans. For our supper this morning, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm thankful that we have the supper every single week. We're in a passage in uh, our section in Ephesians where someone could come and go thinking that this is who I want to be and this is what I want to do. I don't want to be angry anymore. I want to stop being angry. We could try and endeavor to do those things like we've done the last couple of weeks. I want to talk better. I want to use my words better in a way that's building up and not discouraging. We can possibly endeavor to do those things apart from worship somehow disconnect them from enjoying what, Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. And the, the, the sermon every single week brings us back to it. If you hope to work through conflict with one another, if you hope to deal with anger while it's still called today, if you, let me just share this with you. Some of y'all know me well enough to know that this story of Nabal and Abigail is more familiar to me than I would like. Any of y'all have a story in the Bible that you kind of identify with and you're like, man, I'm kind of ashamed that that's kind of who I identify with? I kind of identify with Nabal, to be honest with you. And Christy often reminds me of Abigail, beautiful and wise and discerning, and a guy that can be pretty worthless and hot-headed at times. Man, I want to encourage you, if you... Um, I don't know where I was going with this story. I just wanted to connect you to somehow to this being a real worship thing. I know where I was going. The only hope for Ben McGraw and my anger that I grew up with, that I fostered from day one, is that I'm enjoying Christ. If I'm just trying to hunker down and not be mad, it don't work. If you have talking problems like we dealt with the last couple of weeks and you just want to hunker down and just talk right, you just want to have holy talk, but you're not not connected to enjoying Christ and not connected to worship, it's going to fail. And if it succeeds, it's just going to be, uh, uh, it's a false success. It's not even worship. So the reason I share this with you is because I'm not as much of a Nabal now as I was 10 years ago. There's hope for Ben McGraw. And there's hope for you. Some of y'all might be able to identify with the angry person this morning and feel like, man, that, that really connected to me. I, I'm angry more often than I would like to be. There's hope for you, and the hope is not that you hunker down and just stop doing it. The hope for you is that you enjoy Christ and that he transforms you over time while you enjoy him. And that's the point I wanted to make with the supper is that's what we do every single Sunday is we connect it to what has been done for us. Connect what we've talked about in these last few minutes to what God has done for us in Christ and consider in the supper what was hard won for us.
1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy our Savior together.